Well, my name is Donnie Tapey. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Amen. Yeah. And I have an incredible family. Uh, my wife, Meredith, if you don't know her, uh, she's awesome. She's the best wife in the world. Sorry, ladies, all you other wives. Don't, 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 don't make the mark. But that's okay, though. I'm just joking, just joking. She's amazing. My wife is awesome. And I have two amazing kids. I have a one-year-old son named Lachlan. He's, he makes me smile all the time. And I have a four-year-old daughter named Addie that is just full of joy. And I love her. Um, we've been in a series called God is Faithful. But before I get to that, uh, the last time I was up here, things didn't go so well. <laughs> If you were here for that, uh, so for those of you who weren't here, just a kind of a quick summary and update. I was up here and I was closing the service. It was during the second service, and I began to not be able to form my words, uh, and that was kind of a freaky feeling. Think naked on stage type feeling, where you just can't get your words out. And it turns out the doctors told me afterwards, ambulance came, everything like that. I actually collapsed right right there. And uh, doctors told me that I had had a, a TIA, or a transient, uh, transient ischemic attack, which is basically a, what they think could have been a blood clot in my brain that uh, slowed blood flow enough to where I had collapsed, and it, it, it began to give me symptoms. Um, but just want to let you know, after going through all that, and the doctors and everything, they've given me a clean bill of health in the name of Jesus. So there's nothing going forward that I have to do besides maybe take a baby aspirin daily they had, they had recommended, which is amazing and is incredible to me. Um, and just want to thank you guys, like all of the prayers, um, all the texts, all the meals we, we were brought, all the kindness that you guys showed us in that time, we're just undone by it. And so thank you guys so much. I feel so blessed and loved by you all. So I got a good family. Amen. All right, so we've been in a series called God is Faithful. We have a few hopes for you in this series. One is that your awareness of the faithfulness of God would grow so that you are aware and you realize how faithful God has been. And our second thing is that we, we pray that this series would be something that you would look back on and, and remember the faithfulness of God, that when you need to remember the faithfulness of God, you would go back to the series and listen and to remember, man, God is so faithful. And then our third hope for you is that leading up to Easter, you would, you would remember that Easter literally is the culmination of God's faithfulness. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So last week was God is Faithful to Provide, and Johnny brought the heat. It was awesome. I encourage you to go and listen to that online on our uh, podcast. And this week is going to be God is Faithful to His Promises. All right? And to get us started, I want to watch a little video that I think will help set us up well. Hopefully no one suffers from anxiety in here, <laughs> because I probably just triggered you. Uh, did anybody notice anything about that video? No ropes. So that's Alex Honnold. He's one of the 1% of mountain climbers that does that climbs without ropes because it's so dangerous. One mistake, one slip, one moment of not paying attention and you're done. And that's it. And sometimes I think life can feel like that in some ways. We can feel like we're on this cliff just climbing and it's all up to us and there's such uncertainty and it's all under our own strength and our own power. 
And so when, when I think of this today, if you are a believer today, that's how life can feel sometimes. And so if God is faithful to his promises, if God is faithful to his promises, then that's not the case. And that's not what life is like. We have something to fall back on. But if he's not faithful, then we've got a tremendous problem. And if you're not a believer today and you're here and God's not faithful, you might as well stop listening now. But if he is faithful, if God is faithful, then man, you have been offered this incredible, amazing gift of these promises that act like anchors in our life something to trust and rely on when our own abilities fail. When our ability to, 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 to get it all right and to do everything correct and to be everything we need to be isn't enough. And that's my hope for you today, is to help you to see how God is faithful to his promises to you. So, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20. You can look on your device. I want to encourage you also to get out something to take notes with because notes are good. I think Zach shared this once, but when you take notes, you, re, you actually uh, remember about the same amount as someone who doesn't take notes, but you actually get it structured in a way that makes sense. And so you actually come away taking away more from the talk rather than just kind of random things that you remember. So take notes. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20 says this, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I, uh, that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God or in the account of this same story in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied to him in Matthew, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This phrase that Peter uses there, the Messiah of God, or God's Messiah in some translations, is packed with history and with meaning. And the word Messiah literally means anointed or anointed one. Uh, but to the Jews in Jesus' day and to Peter, anointed one meant king. But this was not just any king. This was a king uh, that was promised by God to his people. This was a king that had been spoken of throughout time throughout the Old Testament and promise that would come and would deliver God's people. And so we know, you know, what, what Peter is saying and, and, and the significance of what he's saying about him, how, how big it is, but, but what, still, what does he mean? What are these promises that this Messiah that he refers to, that he calls Jesus, what, what is he saying? And throughout the Old Testament, from beginning to end, we have promises from God to his people through prophecies, through uh, writers in the Old Testament, and all of these promises are from God, and that one day he's gonna fulfill these. So I wanna help you kind of get an overarching picture of what these promises in the Old Testament are 
so that you can see and appreciate what this word, what, what, what Peter calling Jesus the Messiah of God really means. Amen? Okay, so think ESPN highlight reel of the Old Testament. Old Testament style, okay? So, the Old Testament begins with this incredible creation story. And God creates the world. And he puts in it plants and animals and everything is beautiful. And then he creates this garden. And in it he puts all these fruit trees and everything is amazing. I mean, think Dallas Arboretum in the spring on miracle Grow or something. <laughs> Get it? miracle Grow, miracle Grow. Sorry. Um, so think of this paradise, this incredible paradise. And then God places, God creates Adam and even places them in this garden. And he says, everything in the garden is yours. You can have it, take and eat, except for one thing, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's fruit. This, this tree, you shall not take of its fruit because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And then shortly after, there's this, there's this creature that's presented this creature comes, and it's actually a talking snake. I know that's strange. And this creature is, is, is presented, and it's telling a different story. And it begins to tell Adam and Eve that you won't die if you eat this fruit, but in fact, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. And he begins to get them to doubt and to distrust God's character and his heart. And so Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and this goodness of the garden, this incredible garden is tragically lost and sin and death enters into the world through this. But there's, there's still hope, even in this tragedy, there's still hope because God has this strange line in, in Genesis uh, chapter three, verse 15, he has this strange line where this promise that he gives Adam and Eve. And he says uh, basically that this descendant of Eve, this son of Eve, will one day come and will crush the head of the snake and will defeat evil finally. Amen. But it also says that this snake crusher will himself be wounded. He'll be bitten on the heel at the same time as he crushes the head of the snake. Almost like this mutually assured destruction that even though he crushes it, he will die himself. And that's the first promise that we have in the Old Testament of giving hope that God is redeeming the world. All right, fast forward to Genesis 12 and 15 to a man named Abraham. And there's nothing special about Abraham that we're told of in the scriptures. He kind of seems kind of random and God just chooses him. And God gives Abraham two big promises. He says, I will multiply your offspring as many as the stars in the sky and the dust of the earth. So that if someone can count the stars, they'll be able to count your offspring. And then he also tells him that through your family, I'm gonna bless the nations and families of the earth all the nations and families of the earth. So through Abraham, there's gonna be this blessing. And that's the second promise. And then many generations uh, later, uh, there's Judah comes on the scene. And Judah is one of uh, Abraham's great, 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 however many great grandsons. And Judah receives this promise that one day a king that will unite all the peoples and that all the peoples will come under him one day, God's going to bring this through Judah. It's going to come from his line, from his descendants. And that's the third. And then many generations later, the first king that we meet from the line of Judah is King David. And many people think, is this the anointed one, the Messiah of God? 
but it turns out that David is infected with the same sin and brokenness that you and I are, and he fails. And he sleeps with Bathsheba and kills Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But as this story goes on, God gives David a promise. And he says that through your line, I'm gonna bring this Messiah, this king, who is gonna unite all the people and he is going to deliver them. And not only deliver them, but he's gonna deliver them from their sins and he's gonna usher in this era of literally when the goodness of the garden returns to the earth. Think incredible, just like Garden of Eden. And through this king, it's gonna come and it's gonna come from your line, David. He promises him. It's called the uh, Davidic Covenant. At least that's what scholars call it. But things go so badly, and we see generation after generation after generation of David's sons mess up, and they, and they, they go probably as bad as you could go to, to where even one of David's sons tries to kill David to take over the throne. And they just begin to get worse and worse, and they go after money and sex and power and worshiping other gods. And they, eventually things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. And then this big bad empire of Babylon comes and destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, and takes the people away into exile. And during these dark days of Israel's history, though, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. If you've ever read any of the Old Testament, you know they do some pretty insane things, but it's all awesome. And this group of prophets is constantly reminding the people of God, saying, saying, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. This snake crusher will come, and they keep reminding the people of what God's promises are. But there's this one particular prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah says that this promised king that's going to come, this Messiah, is going to receive this wound in himself. And because of, and, he, and, and this wound is going to be him taking on all of humanity's evil into himself. But then all of a sudden, Isaiah says that he comes back and it's by this wound that he's received that he can be, be and bring a source of healing to all people. But then the Old Testament ends and all those promises are just left hanging there. They haven't been fulfilled. God hasn't been faithful to his promises as far as they could see. And I wonder sometimes as I, as I think through that, I think of all these so many thousands of years and all these hopes, do you ever feel like that? Has there ever been a time in your life where you feel like, man, is God gonna be faithful to his promises? Or am I just left hanging out on a rock, holding on for dear life, waiting for God to come through? I, I said a little bit about this at the beginning of the service about what happened six weeks ago, about my health and all that. There's a part of that story that I want to tell you today. I think um, after the paramedics and the ambulance came, they took me and they placed me in the, in the ambulance. And during that time, I still didn't know what was happening. I didn't, I didn't realize. All I, know, all I knew is that I couldn't get my words out. And I, I knew that was a, a symptom of, of, of a stroke. And so I just had all these questions. about a seven-minute ambulance ride. And in that time, about the, 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 the paramedic actually, as soon as I got in the ambulance... He, he asked me, did, did I have any kids? I couldn't even respond to him. I just, I started just weeping. Because I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know if I was going to see Meredith again. I didn't know if I was going to see my precious son's face. 
Sorry, it's still a little fresh, I think. <laughs> Didn't realize until I started sharing it. So there's this, like, there was this, for me in this moment, just a lot of fear. And I just kind of wept for the first minute. And then just what began to flood into my mind was this promise of God. In Romans 8, 28, it says that, for we know all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That God works everything together for good. And in this time, I just grabbed onto that promise. I didn't let it go. I just held on with all my might. And I just began to pray and ask God that whatever may come, that he would shepherd my wife and my kids. And that I knew I could trust him with that. And so I'm not telling this story to toot my own horn or say, look at how faithful I was. In fact, I, I tell it because of the opposite. Because in that moment, there was so much fear and anxiety that came up. I, I needed an anchor. I needed something that I could grab on that I knew would not break in the midst of crisis, in the midst of fear, in the midst of worry, in the midst of chaos, seemingly. And... I liken it to this a little bit. You ever seen that? You know what this is? There we go. It's a carabiner. This isn't like the little ones you get at 7-Eleven, though. You know what I mean? This is a real deal. Car- uh, <laughs> it's a real deal carabiner. I need some water. <clears throat> this little thing. It says on the side. There's a rating on it for the force going this way. And it says 27, and that means 27 kilonewtons. Everyone's like, oh, kilonewtons, yeah. Everybody know what a kilonewton is? No, probably not. That's okay. I didn't either. I had to look it up. So a kilonewton is about 225 pounds of force. And if you do the math, for this one, that's about 6,000 pounds. You could hang my Nissan Versa and then another one off of this, and it wouldn't break, and it would still be operable. Isn't that incredible? And there's actually ones they make that are made of steel that can hold up to 40 kilonewtons, about 9,000 pounds. And it's just this, this, look at it. I mean, this little small thing with this gate, and you would wear it on your harness and clip it into the rope so that if you fall, this would catch you. And it's so strong, but it's so small, seemingly insignificant. And that's kind of like this, this scripture in some ways. I, I read it, and it's so small, so short. But the power that's contained in it is unbelievable. The power for you to be able to rely on it is incredible. And so we just described the Old Testament and everything that happened. And then we get to this point point, we're just hanging. There's these promises that aren't developed, that aren't fulfilled. And that's kind of where we find Peter in this passage. Peter is here, he's holding on to it, he's believing that the faithfulness of God is going to be true, that God is going to be faithful to his promises, but he doesn't have Jesus, he doesn't, or he doesn't, you know, Jesus hasn't died on the cross, Jesus hasn't done any of that yet, so he doesn't know, and he's trusting, and for the Jewish people in that day, there was this lingering question, that same lingering question, and not just over a seven-minute ambulance ride or something else but over thousands of years of just hanging there, wondering if God's going to be faithful. 
I want to read the, the, the passage that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, about him being this wounded healer, this, this person who had crushed the snake but also be wounded himself and then become a source of healing. It's incredible. It's on Isaiah 53. You can read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read uh, part of it, starting in verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4. He says, Surely he took up our pain. And mind you, sorry, mind you, this is 600 years before Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had not done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, through, and, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities, their sins. Isn't that incredible? 600 years before Jesus. And then Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene in the opening pages of the New Testament. And he's described as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. And we learn through this long genealogy that's kind of boring that he comes from the line of Abraham and Judah and David. And he begins confronting the effects of sin in people's lives by healing them and by forgiving them of their sins, and by associating with, the, with, with outcasts in society. But Jesus begins to tell his closest followers that he will become king, and he will bring healing, but to do so, he has to take on the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. Remember back to the fatal snake bite wound, Genesis 3.15. And Jesus indeed goes to the cross, and he takes our, our sin and our shame upon himself. But just as Isaiah prophesied, he comes back. He raises from the dead. And he begins to, and he's exalted. And, and now, now that he is raised from the dead, we have available to us through the Holy Spirit his power to begin confronting the sin and the death that's in our lives. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? And so for, for Peter in this passage, when he exclaims, you're the Messiah, he's like, Jesus, he's the fulfillment of, the, of all the promises of God. Like he's doing it. Can you imagine, if you think, of, just put yourself in his shoes to think of all the promises and all the covenants and all the reading and all the scripture and all the hoping and God's finally doing it. You can hear in his, in his exaltation of Jesus, you are the Messiah. And he still doesn't even know the full story. 
And that's what's amazing. God is fulfilling all of his promises. And so in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says this. I love this verse. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. Do you know that? That's why we say in Jesus' name, amen. Because everything we have is through him. And if there's anything you walk away today hearing, I want it to be this. That if God has been faithful in Christ Jesus to his promises, then you can have strong assurance that he's going to be trustworthy in the future for everything in your life. Amen? You can promise that he will not break, that he will not let you down, he will not let you fall. And that being true, that God is faithful in Jesus Christ and that we can trust him with our future, what does that mean for our daily lives? How does it affect the way we live? What does the New Testament containing the promises of Jesus for our future tell us about how to live? And now there are more promises in the New Testament than we could ever name today, we could ever list out. And amazing, beautiful, glorious promises. But I chose three that I wanted to exhort you in today because I believe they're so important. You ready? Okay. This is where the rubber meets the road. Everybody engaged? Everybody here? All right. That was a lot of Old Testament history, I know. But y'all, are, y'all did amazing. Y'all did incredible. So, number one, God is faithful to his promises in Jesus Christ. Therefore, trust that you are sons and daughters in his kingdom. What do I mean by that? Um, in my job for Antioch, one of, the, one of my main roles is to disciple people and to invest in them and to help develop them. And one of the things that gets me fired up more than anything is when I see and when I hear and, 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 and when people tell me how they're, they're struggling with their identity in Christ. And I have the same struggle often. But when I see that this temptation that Satan brings to live as though we were under the law of God and not under the grace of God that we, would, that we have received in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises in the Old Testament, they were basically covenants. It was like this agreement that God would make with his people. He would say, all right, I will do this for you. I'll bless you. I'll do these things. But you must live like this. You have to follow these 10 commandments. You have to do these things. But over and over again, I mean, if the Old Testament is anything, it's, an, it's, it's a read of the failure of the people of Israel. I think C.S. Lewis said it once. That's one of the reasons why he believes it is because it's utterly unflattering about, about the people. If you read most people's historical books, it kind of glorifies themselves. And it shows them unfaithful, unfaithful, unfaithful. And we are in the same boat as them. The Old Testament is almost like a mirror that you see yourself in that we have not been faithful to God's promises. Indeed, we were broken in some way that we cannot do. We cannot live out this law of God, how we, how we ought to live. And I want you to see this in Philippians 3, 8 through 9. I, I have this as a slide because I, want, uh, I wanted you to, to see this part. It says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or trash or refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Amen? 
Amen. So if you call Jesus Lord and Savior, and when you totally blow it, and when you miss the mark, and when you mess up in life, when you sin, you can run to the fact that you are literally clothed with the righteousness of Christ that you receive by faith and not by the works that you do. You cannot earn it. It says in John 1, uh, 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're a child of God if you love Jesus today. Do you know that? The only way I can make this more clear is, is I think talking about my daughter, Addie. In, in our home, Addie, well, both my children are loved. I'm gonna, just going to talk about Addie. In our home, Addie is loved. Like we love her. We lavish love upon her. I mean, I probably tell her that I love her. I mean, I probably could put a number on it. Probably 40 times maybe. Just constantly showing her that I love her. But she messes up and she sins. But when she does, man, it's my joy to show her grace. But also I do, I, I discipline her to help teach her. And not only to help teach her, yeah, and not, and not, and <laughs> Marty would say that. Well, I love you, Marty. Come on, amen. So, but I, I discipline Addie and I teach her, but not just to teach her, but to restore intimacy and relationship between her and I. If any of you have children, you'll know that when they disobey, there's a distance that's placed there. They usually don't run and hug you and are affectionate. There's kind of like a, a distance between you and them. And it begins to do that. It's a model for our relationship with God. And so in our house, when Addie, when Addie sins, we go through discipline, yes, but it's to the end of restoring relationship. That's what it's like to live in a house with a loving father. And you are children in God's house. Do you see how that connects Imagine the opposite. Imagine if Addie was a criminal in our house, and that's how I viewed her, in, in, in a courtroom. It would be, you know, on the charges of whining and complaining, guilty. You know, it'd be like, not like hit, but like the judge's gavel. <laughs> that probably too, you know, I mean, you know, we're on, on the charges of smacking your brother, guilty. It would just be constant all the time. Guilty, guilty. Guilty, here's the punishments. That's what it would be like and not unto relationship. Does that make sense? So today, because of the promises of God, you are sons and daughters in God's kingdom. That's amazing. You're a son and a daughter. You're loved. You're brought in. You're shepherded. You're guided. He's not abandoned you. And it's unconditional love. That's what's amazing. In Jesus, we've received this righteousness we didn't earn. Oh. All right. Following, this, uh, following Jesus can be hard at times, but if you walk in this truth that you're a son and the daughter, uh, that you're a son and a daughter in God's kingdom, and that you trust in what Jesus has done for you, man, in 40 years, when you look back on who you've become, being a person that's lived in the house of God like that, you're gonna find that you've become a lot more like Jesus. In fact, you're gonna to start to resemble him a lot. It'd be hard to tell you apart. But imagine living and growing up in a house where it's judgment, judgment, condemnation, condemnation. It begins to transform us in a, in a different direction. And so if you want to trust God for your future, 
Man, living as sons and daughters is key to that. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Number two, God is faithful to his promises in Jesus Christ. Therefore, trust his timing and that he is good. In Romans 8, 28, there's an incredible promise that has sustained Christians throughout the ages. It's that same promise I spoke of earlier. And, it's, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What's this verse saying? Well, one, it's acknowledging that there's going to be things that need to be worked for good. That there are going to be tragedies, there are going to be hardships, there are going to be difficulties in life. And, and the second thing that's beautiful and amazing is that there is nothing outside of its claim. All things. Do you hear that? All things. But nothing is said about timing. Nothing is said about, what, about when this will happen, only that God will do it. And I used to hear this as kind of a, a trite or cliche saying that you might say to someone who's in, uh, who's in some sort of crisis. But there's a deep truth here that I believe shatters any triteness or clicheness when we really hear it and when we really believe it. And that truth is another somewhat sometimes trite or cliche sounding saying <laughs> that God is good. But what, but what do I mean by that? I mean, think of the best and most amazing and pure thing you can. You know, a, a baby swaddled in swaddling cloths or, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, something. I mean, you know, coffee brewed in a Chemex in the morning when you wake up or whatever it may be. Think of the most amazing and good and pure thing you can. Seriously, close your eyes, think of it. Do you have that thing in your mind? That's nowhere near the goodness of God and describing how good he is because the goodness of God is, is defined by God's character. It's almost like God can't be defined by the word good. God literally is good. He is the definition of what's good. So as soon as you start wondering if God is good, it, does, it almost doesn't work because God is good. <laughs> There's no way to get around it. We literally define things in the world as good because of who he is. Because of his patience and kindness and character and love and joy, all the things about him, all the things that we admire, God defines those. Isn't that amazing? All right. And it's when we realize this at, the, at a deepest level that it begins to minister to us, that we can begin to trust that God will work all things together for our good, no matter what may come in your life and no matter what may happen. God is good and he's going to work all things according uh, and he's going to work all things for your good. All right, number three. Three minutes. All right. <clears throat> God. Number three. Trust his faithfulness by walking in thankfulness. It's easy to go, hmm. All right, Donnie. I mean, really, your last point is going to be be thankful. You know, is that, is that really impactful? Yeah, come on. Some people know. Some people hear. Who here wants to know the will of God for their lives? Everybody? Everybody wants to? You're like, what job should I take? What, uh, what major should I major in? All these questions. Well, I'm about to tell you. Ready? Okay. It's going to be good. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm going to read that again. 
give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And actually says, the two verses before that say, rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thankfulness to God by definition is literally the act of thanking God for what he's done, reminding ourselves of who he is, reminding ourselves of his character. And when we do that, it keeps our hearts and affections grounded in him so that they don't wander. When we walk in thankfulness, it's like, it's like taking this and it's like reclipping every time. Sometimes in life, things happen and we, we unclip, we start not being thankful. We start walking and grumbling and complaining and entitlement. But then when we remember, when we're thankful, we reclip to God's, to, to God's promises and to his character and to who he is and we can trust him. One of the things I came away from the whole experience six weeks ago was how we're, sometimes the things in my life and, and, and that I would allow to steal my joy and, and the things that, would, that I would let bend me all out of shape and, that I would, that I, and things that I would grumble and complain over. And, and especially even with my family and kids, it's hard to raise kids. One of the hardest things I've ever done. Seriously. If you want to get married, that's great. Raising kids is hard. It begins to transform and sanctify you. And the other night, I was, what's funny, the other night I was preparing this very section of, of my talk, and I'm sitting there on the couch. I've like got tears in my eyes. I'm like, you know, writing away, feeling, oh, this is going to be so good, you know, writing away, feeling the thankfulness of God and all that, and then Lachlan starts crying, and Meredith was asleep, so I was like, ugh. It was like... And in that, in that moment, the spirit was like, you know, it was like, wake up. And I was like, I sat up and I went, okay. I went, thankfulness, thankfulness in all things. And I got up, I walked in, I got it. He just wanted some water, poor thing. I got, I got, I got his water bottle. I went up to him and he was like holding onto the crib. And he was like, you know, it's like, I just want some water. So I, I gave him his water and he was just like, you know, and I just sat there for a moment. And just watched him. And I, and I, I started laughing because he's so absolutely cute and unbelievably cute and unimaginably cute. I was like just staring at him. And I, started, I literally started laughing out loud because he's so awesome. I love him so much. And he, he stopped going. He looked up and he starts laughing. And we had this like moment together of just pure joy. And I thought if I wasn't walking in thankfulness, I would have missed that. And I think, how many things do I miss in my life because I'm not walking in thankfulness? Instead, I'm grumbling and complaining. And, you know, quick Bible quiz. What's the, what's the thing that when, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, what was their primary attitude and heart and the reason that they had to wander in the desert for 40 years? Come on. God actually cites it. He says, these last 10 times that you have tested me <laughs> is, you know, this, this grumbling and complaining heart. But when we walk in thankfulness, I mean, thankfulness to God is like tilling the soil of our heart. We literally start to break up hard ground. When, we're, when we walk and when we grumble and we complain, it hardens the soil of our heart. And, the, and it suffocates the fruit of the spirit that would like to come up and to grow. But then when we are thankful, it literally breaks up that hard soil so that it can receive these seeds and begin to grow and produce fruit in our lives. Love and joy and, pay, and patience 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all these fruit of the Spirit that God wants to grow in your life. And have you ever seen anyone who was doing any one of those nine things and was grumbling and complaining? They're almost incompatible with each other. So thankfulness to God by definition is the act of thanking God for what he's done, reminding ourselves of his promises that he has fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, it keeps our hearts and affections planted on the rock, planted on Jesus, and that is strong assurance for your future. Strong assurance for anything that, 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 that may come your way. So, God is faithful to his promises in Jesus Christ. Therefore, trust his faithfulness by walking in thankfulness. Trust his timing and that he is good. And trust that you are sons and daughters in his kingdom. I feel like I've shared the gospel like seven times in this sermon. But I, I, I just want to remind you all, for you guys today that are sitting here, like the fact that Jesus came and died on the cross for you. I mean, just... There is so much brokenness and sin in the world and in my own life and in our lives. We feel the weight of our sin. We feel the weight of our brokenness. There's so much brokenness. And the fact that God fulfills his promises and comes and dies on the cross to take our sins upon himself and then to give us life and peace and joy and all the benefits of the kingdom of God, of living as a son and daughter in his kingdom. It's absolutely amazing. And if you don't know Jesus today, I want you to know that God has that for you today. He desires that for you today. So if I could just have everyone stand. If there's any part of you that's been convicted if there's any part of you that, that wants to know God today and you don't know Jesus, I just want to lead you in a simple prayer. I want everyone just to close their eyes. And if you feel like you want to receive Jesus today, if you want to know Jesus and have a relationship with him, just raise your hand. No one's looking. No one's paying attention. I want to lead you in a prayer, but I want everyone to join in with me as we pray this, as we remind ourselves who God is and what he's done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being faithful to your promises. I desire to know you, Jesus. I confess you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. We're raised from the dead and have given me your righteousness as a gift. Please, Lord, come into my heart now and fill me with your spirit that I may walk in newness of life with you. Amen. Amen. We're going to go enter into worship and spend some time with God. And I encourage you that as we worship, just to press into the Lord. We'll have communion ready uh, here in the three aisles at the front for you to come and partake. And as you take communion, what it's meant to do is to remind you of the broken body of Jesus on your behalf. To remind you of the blood that he shed on your behalf. So come forward and take communion as we press into worship. Yeah.